Thank you, Ros and Jenny, for reading those lessons for us. Uh, the main reading I want you to keep an eye on this morning is the Corinthians one from 2 Corinthians, because that 2 Corinthians reading is one of several in the New Testament that refers to Christian congregations collecting gifts of money for people in other places. Indeed, it's one of the recurrent themes of the New Testament that disciples of Christ are called to be generous in terms of the sharing of what they have and who they are. In this instance, Paul writes that he's sending some believers to the Christians in Corinth to collect a bountiful gift that they've clearly promised to give. It's for the saints, the fellow believers in Macedonia, fellow believers who in an age without telephones, TVs, satellites, etc., they would never ever have met. Today, I want to use this passage to note various things about giving, about stewardship, about generosity, about seeking to be good disciples of Jesus Christ, to work out how better to give what's right rather than, as so often for so many of us, just what's left. First, I want you to notice that the money gift is in response to a need. If we had time to read other parts of the New Testament, you would know that the Macedonians are suffering uh, the same kind of cataclysms that various parts of the world are today in terms of starvation. So need and the sympathy it evokes remains a key driver for generous giving. Just look at the huge sums raised for those affected by the Grenfell Tower disaster, for example. God seems to have made human beings in such a way that at their best, they're instinctively moved to give when faced with the need and trauma of other people. And even if not in abject need or even given solely to other Christians, there remains deep rooted within us the recognition that we need to give to those things which are right and which help bring about good things, health as opposed to death, the promotion of righteousness as opposed to evil, etc. That's why many of us give in several directions, not just one. We support several good courses rather than simply the church we belong to. One writer on money and giving recently asked this question, for whom is my money good news? And if the answer is, well, just ourselves really, then as disciples of Jesus, we have a rather serious problem. Sadly, some are deeply suspicious of giving to the church, and in rare occasions with good cause. Stories circulate of spiritual con men or pastors with expensive lifestyles and luxury cars uh, and just apropos of nothing, mine's 14 years old and worth about 500 quid. Or that the church is just selfish and self-serving and therefore the money it wants for itself is just simply to build itself up and build bigger barns and not really use its resources well in the context of society and its needs at all. That's sad when people think like that because of course in the vast majority of cases, and I can assure you in relation to here at Methodist Central Hall Westminster, that's simply not the case. 
To be sure, some of the money we give goes to keep the building open and welcoming, to pay our staff properly what we think, and buy communion wine and the like, and that kind of expenditure is true of every charity and every cause. But it's also very much the case, and you'll have noticed it as you read week by week the notice sheet and the order of service, that when we give, whether it's by cash or direct debit or envelopes, we take an active part in a community that seeks to tithe and give and resource God's kingdom work to partner in the transformation of the world, to bring about life on earth as it is in heaven, as we'd say it in the prayer of the Lord's Prayer. Through our gifts and giving, we support various work among people in underdeveloped countries. We help stunning causes like St. Vincent's Family Project, or the Passage Center for Homeless People, or the Night Shelter, or the Westminster Food Bank, or the Welcome Box Project, and a number of others. Through our gifts and our giving, we enable our children and our young people to be taught and nurtured among others in a caring and a godly context. We release resources to bless the downhearted, to visit the poorly, to offer benevolent gifts and needs as they arise, and to provide space and place where we can meet with others to benefit and deepen friendship. Because... When we give, like the Corinthian Christians of old, we are actually giving to the ministry of Christ. We are not giving just to meet the budget that we've set ourselves, however properly setting a budget might be. Now, I say these things not to get you all puffed up with pride, aren't we good, aren't we generous, because giving to the ministry of Christ is right and proper for Christian disciples. Christ demands our generosity. And for some of us, particularly if we haven't thought about it for some time and time goes by, we need to reconsider what we give, including our giving to the ministry and mission of this church as a community of the ministry of Jesus Christ. So no wonder then that secondly, Paul indicates that the generous giving of money is regarded as a good indicator of how serious we are about our Christian discipleship. We've got that phrase, put your money where your mouth is. And that's effectively what he says to the Corinthians. Otherwise, he says, your promise to give a generous gift will simply be an empty boast. That, in essence, you see, is what the story of the rich young ruler is about. You say you want to be my disciple, asked Jesus. How serious are you? Oh, I'm very serious, says the rich young man. I've done all the right religious things. I've kept all the commandments. And Jesus looks at him and loves him. Marvelous, he says. Now, just one more thing. Give away all that you've got and come and follow me. And he can't. Make no mistake, money is the sacrament of seriousness. Or as Giles Fraser said to a Methodist grouping, God only knows you're really serious when he's got hold of your wallet. You see, when we make our offerings, as we did earlier on in the service, it's as if 
we are standing on the offering plate. That's one reason why we stand when we bring the offering forward, not because we respect money in itself, but because we are saying, this is mine, but it's really yours because everything I have is yours. And because I'm yours, effectively, therefore, I place myself before you again and anew this week. Use these gifts for your purposes and use me as your disciple for your purposes. How serious are we about following Jesus Christ? Jesus, who of over half the parables he told recorded in the Gospels, are about how we use the possessions and the resources that we have. And then thirdly, notice that there's an issue of timing in relation to giving. Paul sends some folk to Corinth to collect the collection because he knows time is of the essence. Get it ready, he says to them. I'm telling you we're coming so we won't find you not ready else both you and I will be humiliated. To give at the right time is really important. Let's use a, a very common example nowadays. You see, most of us still work on the basis of hoarding. We don't like calling it hoarding, but that's what it really is. In other words, we keep what we have saying that when we die, other people, whether it be family or friends or causes or the church, they'll get the benefit, they'll receive the inheritance. But often, that's not the best time, it's too late. In fact, it could be argued that that's not been given at all, it's been left. After all, we keep telling each other, you can't take it with you. For those of us who have them, and I have, Take our children or grandchildren as an example. God willing, when we die at a ripe old age, peacefully in our beds, at home, the perfect death, our children will themselves be almost retired and likely won't need our money then as much as they did many years before when they were still paying mortgages and raising families. In very many cases, the time to help our grandchildren and children is when they're younger and have greater need of money. They'll actually benefit from it, and then we can receive their thanks instead of wondering, I'm sure it's not true in our case, if they're quietly hoping that we'll pop our clogs in the not-too-distant future. One preacher made this very point in a sermon and some weeks later she received a letter from a young couple she didn't know and who hadn't been at the church service thanking her for the sermon. Apparently the wife's parents had attended the church that morning, heard the sermon, gone home after worship and sent her and her brother checks each for £5,000. The woman wrote, please preach more sermons on stewardship and please ensure that my parents are there when you do. <laughs> the timing of gifts is important. Fourthly, this text makes it clear that giving must be voluntary. Look at verse 7. Each of you must give not reluctantly 
or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. In other words, the attitude with which we give is also important. So let me say very clearly, if you are giving reluctantly, stop it. Don't give. Pray and ask the Lord to get you to a point where you can give gladly and then give gladly. Similarly, if you feel under compulsion to give, don't do it. Pray through it until you reach a point where you're not under compulsion. Or again, it's quite possible to make generous monetary gifts which effectively try and buy God off. Though, if we imagine God doesn't know when we're trying to haggle or barter, we're pretty silly, aren't we? It's equally possible to give a small amount which represents much, like the widow's mite. Some of us have much, and God knows that, and some of us have little, and God knows that too. But whether a lot or a little, the attitude with which we give what we give is vital. And if we're honest with ourselves, lots of us were once more passionately committed, promising God our all then than we are now. We gave our lives to the Lord and then in subtle ways, sometimes over many years, we sort of take our life back bit by bit. I know I said, you could have my money, Lord, but that's when I didn't have any. I know you said you could have all my life, Lord, but that was before I got this new job or that was before I met this special person. And God says to us, gently but firmly, at what point did you take back what you gave to me? At what point did you begin to act as if what you had and have and are is yours? At what point did you cease to offer what is right and begin to offer just what's left? One of the most moving sermons I ever heard, heard was by Donald English, who occupied the office that I'm currently in for many years during the 1980s. One of his last sermons was at Easter People, where he'd been told by the organizers to preach on Be Good. It was from a rare text somewhere in the Pentateuch. And he stood up and said, I've been told to, pre to preach on Be Good, I hope you'll find it all right, but I don't want to preach on be good. And we thought, well, he's a grand doyen and uh, he doesn't have to take notice of what Rob Frost tells him to do all the time, so we just let him get on with it. And he began almost sort of ramblingly, which for Donald was very rare. And he began to tell story after story of God's goodness in his life. And he'd been a missionary among the Igbo people in Nigeria when he'd come home and served in Wesley College, Bristol. And very poignantly, in the last few months, because his dear life partner and wife, Bertha, had died. And it devastated him. And then he paused at the end and said, so I guess I'm not asking you to be good. I'm saying in the light of the goodness and the graciousness of God, why wouldn't you want to be good? And we can say something very similar, 
Because ultimately disciples who want to do what pleases the one they love and serve in Christ, the one to whom they owe the deepest unpayable debt imaginable, but one who does not make them feel like a debtor, but invites them to be a member of the family of faith. Why wouldn't you want to give to such a one? The person who sows sparingly reaps sparingly, says Paul. And the person who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. So let each one think what they might give. Fifthly, and I'm nearing the end, the outcome of this thoughtful, cheerful giving to the causes of God's kingdom is that we can rely on God for provision which is abundant and the satisfaction of having shared in good work. In short, and it's a very wonderful word, the giver is enriched. Now, we all know that there's lots of teaching about giving which sometimes tends too easily towards the notion that you give in order to get more, or that God will so reward you that you can never be out of pocket. That teaching is easily overstressed and overdrawn. Note that the word Paul uses here is you will be enriched. And it means that you will be given things of value. True riches. So in terms of stewardship, when we encourage, for instance, enoughness in our lives, or encouraging each other's to get out of debt as soon as possible, or to refrain from extravagant luxuries that we don't really need, or to avoid wasting money on credit card interest payments, or to be generous with our children and grandchildren, to learn contentment with what we have. We are talking about enrichment of life. When you resolve to live to be a wise steward, it honors God. It relieves stress, it builds self-confidence, it removes guilt, it increases your ability to witness to God's goodness, it enables you to give more generously. In a word, your life is enriched. We finished producing our annual review this week. Ollie and all the staff have worked incredibly hard on it, and I have to tell you, I think it looks great. So I want no moans and groans when you see it. Or if you've got your moans and groans, give them to somebody else. But one small change we've made this year is to the gift envelopes that we'll include in the annual review that we'll send to the hundreds of people who are our supporters both here and around the world. Because we've added this Bible text to the envelope. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's from Matthew chapter 6, verse 21. Jesus made it clear, you see, that there's a close tie between people's purses and their hearts. He didn't say, if a person's heart is right, they'll give. He said, when you invest your resources in something, your heart will follow. When we give, we're helping put our heart in the right place. 
and we're enriched. I think that's what Paul is getting at rather than notions that God wants us all to possess more and more money. God wants enriched lives and living in the promise of God who dares us to give cheerfully and generously. A Christian died and was being shown round heaven, newly arrived, and the angel, angel showed him round, and he noticed that in some of the rooms he went past, there was such finery and splendor, and the rooms were laid out in all gorgeous things. When he got to his own room by the angel, it was poor in comparison. There were bare floors, cheap furniture, and the man was so shocked. He turned around to the angel and said, how come all those people have got those fine places and I've got this? I'm sorry, replied the angel. It's all we could make with what you sent us. <laughs> Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth, says Jesus, but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And at the last, when we're stood before the throne of God, recognizing like never before that in fact we couldn't take any of it with us, will we wish we'd put more treasure in heaven? And if that's the case, what are we going to do about that now before we get there. Today, let's resolve to think through again what giving God what is right and not just what is left might mean for us. Amen. So we sing, Lord of creation, to you be all praise. <laughs>